way we treat municipalities is appalling. This week, we're joined by the Honorable Senator Paula Simons. She'll discuss her recent Senate inquiry into the relationship between the federal and municipal governments. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 176. And the segment we're about to play was recorded with Senator Paula Simons a couple of weeks ago, and it's now being presented to you through the magic of editing. But Mac, I got to say, when we had this conversation, I don't think I can think of any other politician that would describe the relationship between the province and municipalities using a slew of classic literature metaphors. It's almost enough to make you want to be a senator if that's what you got to listen to inside the Senate all the time. It was a really fun conversation with Paula. I appreciate the color she brings to it. But of course, the color of this next segment is red. It's the rapid fire segment. While last year, Edmonton had three e-scooter providers with up to 4,000 scooters licensed between them, this year the city will be restricting the number of providers allowed to just two with a maximum of 1,500 scooters. In order to fairly determine which providers may survive, the city has organized an e-scooter hunger games where scooter providers must ride their scooters legally, that is, on the road, on Jasper Avenue, avoiding all sidewalks, and only providers who manage to survive will be permitted to operate, which, unfortunately, means we likely won't see any e-scooters this year. Since 2017, the Edmonton snow clearing budget has dropped 15%, while the number of roads maintained has increased by over 20%. Councillors were perplexed on the right solution, however, with a large tax increase to fund snow clearing, putting a pit in the mayor's stomach. For now, council is going to try to accelerate the city's expansion plans, saying, quote, the more we sprawl, the more people that are moving to Edmonton, and maybe one of them will know how we can clear snow more effectively for less money. The CBMOH, that is the Chief Bird Medical Officer of Health, has issued a province-wide Itadaiha-Puditat order requiring all birds to stay inside until the avian flu scare passes. Bird feeders are required to be takeout service only to reduce close contacts, and large venues like the zoo have been required to bring their birds in out of sight. The member of the Bird Legislative Assembly for Calgary Lougheed was skeptical, however, saying that this was, quote, just a flu and we're still on track for, quote, the best bird summer ever. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported, and this episode is brought to you by the Well Endowed Podcast from the Edmonton Community Foundation. It's hosted by Andrew Paul and Elizabeth Bonkink and produced by Lisa Pruden and explores the impact of passionate people who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. The Edmonton Community Foundation helps people create endowment funds, and the podcast tells the stories of how those endowment funds intersect with community. And Mac, I didn't even read the copy for this ad. Memorized. <laughs> 176 episodes, but I got it. But I will look at the copy to tell you about episode 121, which looks at A Taste of Ramadan, an event that provided food and entertainment to hundreds of Edmontonians earlier this month. You can subscribe at thewellendowedpodcast.com. This week, we are thrilled to be joined by the Honorable Senator Paula Simons. You may know her as a former journalist and post-media columnist here in Edmonton. She was appointed to the Senate on October 3rd, 2018. And now she's come on Speaking Municipally. Welcome to the show, Senator. Thank you very much, Mac. I like it when you say honorable, with that certain, certain je ne sais quoi, a little soupçon of irony. Yes, the Honorable <laughs> Paula Simons. Here I am. So fancy. 
It's so fun to call you Senator. I know you, of course, as Paula, uh, but now yes. I get to call you Senator. So I'm going to lean into that a little bit. I know. Uh, my my, do- my daughter, she was always, was always very awkward when she was like too old to call me mummy and she never really settled on mum. And now she just calls me Senator. <laughs> <laughs> and you love it, right? That's yeah, the way usually, should... usually when she's most annoyed at me, Senator, why <laughs> did you tweet that? <laughs> All right. Well, you uh, made an inquiry at the Senate in December, and that's what we're mainly here to talk to you about tonight. And I just want to say, first of all, that this is such a delightfully nerdy topic for people who are into municipal politics like us. I love that. And also that I listened to your speech, Senator, and you know, I'm not just trying to butter you up here, but it reminded me, honestly, of how much I miss your columns uh, in Edmonton. You're so good at making an argument. Uh, You are missed, but it's Canada's gain. Uh, So tell us about this inquiry that you made in December called Challenges and Opportunities of Canadian Municipalities. Right. So when you launch an inquiry in the Senate, it sounds a little bit grander than it is. This is not like a royal commission. A Senate inquiry is something that senators can do when they have an issue that they want to discuss and debate and bring attention to. The challenge is that, you know, the Senate has certain standing committees and they are time honored committees. Some of them have had the same sort of title and set up for, you know, 50, 60, 70 years. But there isn't any committee in which you can deal with the issues facing municipalities, that you can deal with sort of the constitutional conundrum that municipalities are creatures of the province. And so that even the largest municipalities, Edmonton, Calgary, Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, are very much, you know, the the children and sometimes the stepchildren of their provincial governments. It was really my colleague, Ratna Amidvar, who's a remarkable senator from Toronto who put me up to this. And she said, you should launch an inquiry into municipal issues. I thought, yes, that is what I will do. So (laughs) I launched my inquiry by making my speech. What is supposed to happen is that then there will be subsequent speeches from senators. So now I have been jollying other senators into speaking. I was really happy just the other day. My colleague, Eric Fauré, who's the former mayor of Rimouski, and who was very involved in the Quebec equivalent of what we used to call the AUMA, made a really a fantastic speech, primarily in French, speaking about you know some of these very same issues. And from a Quebec perspective, I have pointed out to Senator Ahmed Vartaratna that since this was her, you know, since she was my muse, she should go next. And she's hoping to speak to this next week. And then I am, you know, now I'm trying to lure Karen Sorensen, who's the newest Alberta senator, the former mayor of Banff into speaking. So the idea is that there will be a series of maybe eight, 10 speeches from various senators that will kind of be a chance for us to talk through some of these issues and then to see if it's something that maybe we can do a deeper study about after that. Most of our listeners are familiar with Edmonton municipal politics. And when a councillor has an issue that they think needs to be addressed, they'll make an inquiry. Part of the inquiry will direct administration to go do some work, get some information. That doesn't sound like precisely what's happening in the Senate here. No, I mean, the inquiry, the onus is on us to do the work. So, I mean, the idea is that I will get senators from across the country, from a variety of backgrounds to speak to this, because the issues facing municipalities are particular to each individual municipality, but there are huge commonalities and similarities. Whether, you know, you're the mayor of Banff or Cornwall, Ontario, or whether you come, you know, from the Miramichi or from Vancouver, every municipality, large and small, faces the same quandary. They don't have the taxing powers that they need to have. They are very much beholden and need to come cap in hand to the province. And they have this funny relationship with the federal government in which there is often federal funding, a pot of money here, a program there. But it's a little bit 
like, you know, Romeo is is in the garden and Juliet is on the balcony and the federal government is trying to get money to the municipalities. But there's always that provincial government, you know, running interference in the middle. It's an exciting opportunity. So much of the time in this country, we are pointing out the things that divide us. I think in this case, when we're dealing with what is the role of municipalities in a future 21st century Canada, there is so much we can learn from each other. And the challenges of municipalities have such parallels from city to city and town to town. I think that I think there's a lot that we can learn from one another. This is not a new topic, of course. I think people nope. have been talking about the problems, the challenges that municipalities face, the unbalance or imbalance in the relationship uh, between the different orders of government. And, and you mentioned it was your colleague that put you up to this, but why why make this inquiry now? It's because of Premier Jason Kenney, right? Well, you know, I mean, from an Alberta perspective, sure. I mean, but, you know, I made this inquiry long before we had, you know, spanking gate. <laughs> but, you know, honestly, I mean, not that I wish to carry uh, water or defend Premier Kenny. These problems predate him. You know, I mean, yes. Was I frustrated when the big city charters ended up lining the bottom of the birdcage? I was. These are these issues are not just here. I mean, you know, in Ontario, I mean, you know, I, I think here in Alberta, we didn't pay that much attention to it. But think about how extraordinary it is that the Ontario government, in the middle of the last municipal election campaign in Toronto, just suddenly told Torontonians, while they were already campaigning, that they were going to reduce the number of wards and the number of seats on Toronto City Council. I mean, that's bonkers. And the Supreme Court ruled just a couple of months ago that the provincial government was completely within their rights to do that. Right. You know, this is not something that is only Alberta's problem. This is a problem that bedevils everybody. But in terms of the timing, to really answer Max's question, I think a lot of it had to do with the pandemic. Because when the pandemic began, I think like a lot of people, I was really, you know, like I, I wanted to do something, yeah. you know, since it wasn't a lot I could do. One of the things that I did was to call out to municipal leaders all across the province to hear about their issues. And, you know, I thought about how much it is municipalities who are on the front line dealing with a public health emergency, dealing with climate change disasters and dealing with, you know, the infrastructure that is destroyed, whether it's by floods or fires or landslides. Uh, and I thought about, you know, all my time covering City Hall, uh, covering municipal issues when I was at the Journal that it's cities who are dealing with immigration and refugee settlement. It's cities, particularly in the Prairie West, that are dealing with issues of reconciliation. And I thought about all the work that Mayor Iveson had done on reconciliation files. And I thought, you know, what are the big issues facing our country right now? They are issues of reconciliation. They are issues of dealing with climate change. They are issues of infrastructure uh, sustainability and making sure that our infrastructure can withstand what climate change is going to throw at it. They are issues of settling new Canadians and building cohesive multicultural communities. All of the major issues that our country faces are being tackled at the municipal level. So why don't our municipal leaders have the tools, the flexibility, the funding to actually do that work. I mean, in all the years I covered city council, city councilors have the hardest job of all because they are right there, right under your nose, directly accountable to voters, you know, right there at the grocery store, right there at the farmer's market, right there at the hockey game. You can buttonhole your city councilor and and give them what for. I mean, the whole pyramid of our government structure in this country is upside down and backwards because who are the people doing the hardest, most concrete work? And why aren't they the ones with the powers to get that work done? So you mentioned earlier that senators 
you have to actually do the work to get anything done here. And yep, we're a municipal politics podcast. We don't have a lot of constitutional law here. I did think that legislation came from the House of Commons and not the Senate, though. So what is the mechanism by which the Senate can actually get something done here? Well, that's a really good question. I mean, an inquiry is not a bill, right? So, I mean, this is... What I've had to learn in the Senate is that everything is incremental. Everything builds slowly, <laughs> one thing on top of another. So first I launch an inquiry, and then when the inquiry concludes, then I can try to get a committee study done. And then once there's a study done, then in theory, senators can indeed propose legislation. It's not always the most efficient way of getting things done, not that the Senate is you know, the bastion of efficiency. You know, in the House of Commons, they're called private members bills. In the Senate, we call them Senate public bills. So a senator can draft a piece of legislation and it can be debated in the Senate, go to committee, be voted on by the Senate. And if it's successful, then it's sent to the House of Commons for them to begin the process over there. It's arduous because there are a lot of limitations. A senator can't draft a bill that imposes a financial obligation on the crown. I can't write a bill that, you know, creates a necessity to pay municipalities money. And I can't, uh, very easily, at least there's some odd exceptions to this rule, but in general, I cannot personally amend the Constitution. So I'm not <laughs> sure, I'm not sure that there is a piece of legislation that I could draft that would solve these problems. But I think what I can do is do my own small part to put these issues on the public agenda. Getting it on the agenda seems to be the way to get something to happen here. You you mentioned in your remarks that wholesale constitutional reform is probably a political non-starter, and your colleague who also spoke to this senator for a, agreed. Uh, both of you mentioned incremental things and how we might build on some of the successes that we've had. And Senator Foray mentioned a couple of things, the gas tax fund, which is now the yep. Canada Community Building Fund, but also this tripartite agreement with Toronto, an MOU related to immigration and settlement. And most recently here in Edmonton, Council has been discussing an exemption to the Controlled Substances Act for decriminalization, which also seems like something that might be happening between municipalities and the federal government. If you can raise the awareness and get this agenda front and center, what are some other wins that you could see between you know, the federal government and municipalities? Well, I think one place that's maybe easier for the feds to step in because it's more in federal jurisdiction is with Indigenous First Nations relations. So, you know, already, say with the, you know, the Enoch First Nation and the city of Edmonton have done a fair bit of work together, but I could see in a more coherent way for the federal government to step in and support municipalities in, you know, I don't want to keep saying reconciliation because it becomes sort of a jargony word after a bit mm. that's you know, emptied out of meaning, but, you know, meaningful relations for urban indigenous communities, but also for the first nations that surround municipalities to get people working in concert for the good of everyone. You know, I remember you guys again, probably will not remember this when <laughs> Enoch wanted to build the River Cree casino and resort. There was a lot of pushback from some people in the city of Edmonton and indeed Bill Smith, who was the mayor at the time, was really angry about the thought of even letting Enoch have access to EPCOR, you know, water and sewer services. And I remember being out at the reserve with Chief Morin, not this Chief Morin, the then Chief Morin, who said to me, you know, the city doesn't want to help us with this. 
well, you know, there's nothing that stops us from building a giant pig farm out here and getting really big fans and blowing (laughs) the effluent from the pig farms into Lewis Estates. And I thought, well, that's, that's so, you know, and now when you think about what an integral part of Southwest Edmonton, that River Cree complex is and how totally integrated it is with the city and how many, you know, conferences and weddings and concerts and things happen there. You know, and, and that didn't used to be the case. There used to be this really sort of sharp line of division that that was the Enoch First Nation, that was them, and this was us. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a really good example of how we build walls in our minds. And I think, you know, that is one thing where I think the federal government and municipalities could really work effectively with First Nations to not only make life better for, you know, Indigenous people living in the city, but for those Indigenous communities that often border municipalities, whether that's in, you know, Wood Buffalo or Calgary or, you know, or, or, or where have you. So that, I mean, that's one where the feds have an, have sort of an automatic right of entry, if I can put it that way. But, you know, immigration and refugee settlement is another one. Here in Edmonton, I, you know, I, I have a meeting with, uh, with the folks at Catholic Social Services later this week. They have the contract to do refugee settlement for, for government refugees. So right now, they're dealing with a huge influx of refugees from Eritrea who are hardly getting any media attention because everybody's distracted with other things. Plus, now they're dealing with, with incoming refugees from Afghanistan and Ukraine simultaneously. And, but it's not just Edmonton. You know, you look at a community like Brooks, for example, one of the most multicultural communities in the whole country, because you've got all people coming from every which where to work at, at the packing plants. And, you know, what support can you give a community like Brooks to deal with the utter demographic shift that the community has undergone in the last 10, 15 years? What can we do to get more immigrants and refugees settled outside the big cities? I mean, it's it, it becomes untenable to have people being concentrated in Toronto and Vancouver. You know, I, I read a piece by Jana Pruden in the Globe and Mail this weekend that you know, some of these uh, latest arrivals from Ukraine are being settled in Mundare. I know that there's a, a community now of West African uh, immigrants who are Francophone who who have been settled in Beaumont to help rejuvenate the the Francophone community in Beaumont. So I think there are there are natural points of entry for the federal government. All that said, it doesn't really get to the really big financial issues. Well, let's talk about the really big financial issues because you've mentioned city charters as well, which was. Yep an attempt at getting cities what they are owed because cities are the economic engines of the province. I believe you said in your speech, it's almost 82% of Canadians live in urban areas in Canada. So truly, Canada is one of the most urbanized nations in the world. Cities are our economic engines, and yet we have no legitimate taxation powers. Even our most prominent taxation power, the property tax, a third of that ends up going to the province anyway in the form of the education portion of the property tax. So it's fair to say that, you know, cities do not have the drive to solve these problems economically. But what's the solution here? I mean, yes, we're just talking at this point, we're starting an inquiry. But if we were mapping out the best case solution, is it amending the constitution? Mac already mentioned this is a relative impossibility, right? Yeah, I would. I would also like a unicorn that flew over the <laughs> rainbow. Um, you know, having said that, the Senate amended the Constitution two weeks ago, and nobody even noticed. <laughs> okay, wait. Well, let's that. That sounds like news. What happened there? Yeah. Well, no. I. I mean, I. I. I you know, I, 
I I gave an interview to the CBC and uh, and then to Ch- to Ched and QR seventy seven. I'm I'm trying to trying to draw people's attention to this. Now I'm I, now I'm taking you down a rabbit hole. This has to do with the uh, the Saskatchewan Act and the tax exemption for the CPR mainline, and I'm trying to get some action on that for Alberta as well. So I mean, it is not impossible to amend the constitution. To amend it in the way you're talking about is nigh on impossible. I mean, I think one of the solutions here in Alberta in particular is the empowerment of rural municipalities. I mean, when we say municipalities, we think of Edmonton because here we are in Edmonton. But, you know, Parkland County is a municipality. Every county in this province is its own municipality. And I'll tell you, when you start speaking to enough small town mayors and county reeves, there is a lot of very deep anger at the way that they have been taken for granted, at the disappearance of taxes. When the oil and gas companies stopped paying their taxes and there was no bailout for them, right? I mean, there are a lot of people who are angry, not from a, you know, a party politics ideological perspective, but who just feel these are like severely normal Martha Henry rural Albertans who've been left holding the bag. And I think that if you can make common cause, you know, with the the big city folks and the smaller rural municipalities and say, we all have the same problem, which is that we are not masters in our own homes. How do we deal with that? How do we get a fair deal? And, you know, when we say fair deal, what we, what we mean is money. So, you know, from the federal government's perspective, they could provide more money. You know, the challenge is always if it has to be filtered through the province you know, to somehow figure out the workaround so that you can have federal relations without trespassing and stomping on the constitutional toes of provinces. I want to go back quickly to what you said about municipalities of all sizes, finding common ground and that being an effective approach. Is that really the most expedient way to do it? Are not cities like Edmonton, Calgary, Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, these cities are large cities with very different problems and a lot more power and clout on their own than all of the collection of small municipalities. I mean, here in Alberta, municipalities are concerned about the idea of a provincial police force. This does not apply to Edmonton and Calgary. Shouldn't we go further down the path of the city charter? Isn't that the way to get cities more control, more power, more potentially more I think, money? I think, I think we do both at the same time. I mean, I think it's really interesting when you look at the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, the FCM, you know, they have a separate club for the big cities, yeah. for the big city mayors. And the big city mayors get to have their own special big city mayor breakfasts and their big city mayor meetings. And I think it's obvious that, you know, if you're the mayor of Ottawa, you might have more in common with the mayor of Calgary than you do with the mayor of, I don't know, Prescott. I'm trying to think what the little towns are around Ottawa. And so, yes, I think it's, I think it's a really good thing that the big city mayors work together on their issues. I think it's been a positive thing, you know, during the Nenshi Iveson years that there was really good collaboration between the mayors of Edmonton and Calgary. And I think, you know, with uh, Gondek and Sohi, we should be able to see the same kind of thing because, of course, premiers in this province uh, since time immemorial have played Edmonton and Calgary off against each other and right. you know, have been doing those since, since, so since 1905 and before. When they can split the two cities, that is not good. So, I mean, Edmonton and Calgary are going to have their own particular concerns and interests. But I do think it is essential to be mindful of the fact that we have a lot of allies. Mm. You know, the, the other thing that I'm really pleased that I've seen happen over over the course of my long life uh, 
she said in her oldest, creakiest voice, um, <laughs> is, you know, that the municipalities of Metro Edmonton work together far more collegially and constructively than I ever would have imagined possible 15 years ago and have really put aside some of their stupid resource guarding dog mm. at the dog park, guarding their turf nonsense and have come to realize that we must work together as a metro region and that, you know, that we're all in this together, whether we're St. Albert or Beaumont or uh, Stony Plain or Fort Saskatchewan, that we have to function as one economic and cultural node in order to, to compete in a global economy. And so I think it's really important that although, yes, we're a big city, we should have, I think, we would be well served by a big city charter. We have to fight for the things that we as the city of Edmonton need. But I think we have to be careful to maintain the alliances that will serve us well. Someone should tell uh, the Calgary region the importance of collaboration. <laughs> <laughs> they just kicked two cities out, two municipalities out of their regional board. It is a problem, right? Because as long as you think, aha, there are only so many, am I about to charge quote George W. Bush, say it's not so. <laughs> if you think that there are only so many resources and we have to fight over them and squabble over them, instead of saying, what was it the Bush said? We need to grow the pie? We need to grow the pie. You know, what's, <laughs> what's good for the Edmonton region is good for the Edmonton region. I think it's so exciting that, you know, there's this hydrogen project that is happening in the industrial heartland, you know, east of the city, in, in which, you know, you have Edmonton and uh, Sturgeon County and Fort Saskatchewan and the Enoch Cree Nation all working together on that economic opportunity. You know, I mean, I, I just think now, now I'm, now I've, now I've taken my unicorn out to pasture someplace. I, I just think that there are things that, there are things we could think about what this city is going to look like 50 years from now. I've been thinking a lot about 50 years ago. Mm. 1972 was a watershed year in this province. It's sort of the Lougheed's government was elected in 71, but they didn't really sort of do things until 72. And I was looking back at Hansard the other day, looking at the list of all of the bills that the Lougheed government introduced in 1972, which basically set the table. Wow, for, you had a for, fun hobby there. Uh, yeah, it was a super fun, it was a super fun time uh, because that is what I do. <laughs> That's what I do for it's there's a pandemic on what else what else does one do <laughs> but i mean 50 years ago there was a vision for this province that was cohesive and coherent and that set the table for everything that came afterwards i think in that first session they had something like 126 bills and they just sort of laid out boom 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 this is the kind of province we're going to be this is the kind of province we're going to have and i thought about that you know the ring road which none of, you know, we're all anti-sprawl, downtowny types. But that ring road is a remarkable thing. And Edmonton got its built long before Calgary did. Mm -hmm. And why do we have that ring road? Because the Lougheed government blocked the land decades and decades before when the idea of putting a ring road there seemed completely nuts. They acquired that land for that, for the tuck, for the transportation utility corridor. We need to be able to have the kind of long-term vision. What kind of city are we going to have 50 years from now that is not going to be car-centric, that is still going to have housing that people can afford to live in? When you see what's happened in Toronto and Vancouver, where you know nobody under the age of 40 is ever going to be able to buy a house again, um, unless mommy and daddy leave them a lot of money. 
Yeah. You know, we can build a city here that is still a place that people with middle class incomes can have homes and raise families. And what are the pieces of the puzzle that we need to put in place to build a city in a province that will sustain us past the end of oil? I mean, you know, what are we going to do after this? Because the after of this is coming and we have to be ready for it. That was one of my favorite parts about your speech you made for your inquiry, actually, is that you ended on such a hopeful note referencing Voltaire and talking about tending our municipalities because there we plant the seeds of our future, is what you said. Such poetry. It's great. I loved it. <laughs> Senator, this has been fantastic. Thank you for joining us to talk about this. I would, I can't let you go, though, without asking for your thoughts on taxing Google and Facebook to give the money to PostMedia and Torstar instead of digital independence like Taproot. Well, if we were actually taxing them in like a normal kind of tax regime, you're talking about Bill C-18, yes. which is a mess. It is a mess. I mean, I've already come out publicly and say I, and say I, I oppose Bill C-18. It's based on an Australian model, which was set up bluntly to bail out Rupert Murdoch's newspapers in Australia. And it, and it did that very effectively. Is that the model we wish to follow here in Canada? I'm not sure that at this point it makes sense for us to set up a model that privileges legacy media over startups. When I brought that issue up with the Department of Heritage, they said to me, oh, no, startups will be eligible to negotiate with Google and Facebook for money, too, that they'll be able to form sort of collectives of podcasts and websites. The problem is that, again, we are squabbling over a small sum of money. I mean, you guys know because... You know, Mac and I, Mac and I have been having this conversation for the last 15 years. The issue isn't that Google and Facebook are getting rich by publishing links. They got rich because they destroyed the model that was the advertising model that sustained local media monopolies for, you know, 150 years. The model is broken and it's, and it's done. Asking Google and Facebook to make whole the news industry that is a non-starter. It's not going to work. It doesn't, you know, and, and even when I spoke to Heritage, they acknowledged that there is no logical nexus. A link tax doesn't make any sense. How are we going to have good local news coverage? It's not going to be via the methodology laid out in C-18. And I will be doing my very, very best as an independent senator and a member of the Senate Standing Committee on Transportation and Communications to make the argument that this is a wrong-headed strategy. The late Elaine McCoy had a wonderful uh, phrase she used to use. You know, she said, this is shooting at the wrong duck. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think we're shooting at the wrong golden goose. Indeed. Well, I look forward to you killing this in the Senate since you have the power to do <laughs> yeah. that, right? I, I um... <laughs> Oh, I, you know, between C-18 and C-11, I'm, yeah, I'm tearing my hair out. And I'm remembering that I have a master's degree in communication, in communication policy, as well as journalism. And uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting times. Sometimes it's easier to talk about trains. Yes, indeed. So I want to use my final question for something considerably more inane than Mac. Okay. Um, All right, Troy, we, you go ahead. <laughs> we have to ask you, because you're a stalwart, longtime Edmontonian, we ask this question of everyone and we expect a good response from you. What do you think of the Talus Dome? I love the Talus Dome. 
Ah, that's the right answer. I that love is, the talisman. Right it, it mean, I, you know, I'm a magpie at heart, right? It's shiny. Um, the my only problem with the talisman is that sometimes I look at it so affectionately as I'm driving along the white mud that you know I may cause an accident. But um, <laughs> you know, did I always love the talisman? I didn't always love the talisman, and it used to strike me as ridiculous that it was kind of there and not a place more people could see it. And then I realized, no, thousands of people see it every day. I like the talisman. I like the willow. In Borden Park, you know, there are certain things I like and other ones not so much. I do not, I do not miss the baseball bat. Where is the, is the baseball bat still up? I think the baseball bat is still up, but it doesn't spin anymore. It doesn't spin anymore. And those bloody pan pipes that never worked. But (laughs) but I do love, I do love the talisman. As all good Edmontonians do. I think that's a good place to end on, but we like to give our guests a last chance for plugs. Is there anything coming up or is there anything that we missed that you think our listeners should know about? Here's your section of the floor to stand up and do a speech. All right. Well, I have my own podcast, of course, which is Alberta Unbound. We just dropped for April a three-part series about the 40th anniversary of the Constitution and the 50th anniversary of Alberta's Bill of Rights. This is part of the reason I was looking up Lougheed stuff from 1972. And so it's a a three-part chopping up of the Leach Lecture, which I gave to the U of A and U of C law schools, that looks at Alberta's role in the evolution of the Charter of Rights and the Constitution. Everybody should listen to my to my podcast. You know, the the, the month before that was uh, Beverly McLaughlin, and the month before that was Cadence Weapon. So you know, we we try to mix it up a bit and talk about uh, what makes Alberta and Edmonton such awesome places. Fantastic. We'll include the the link in the show notes, and I'm sure you can find that wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, I mean, Tap Taproot has been very good about about talking about my podcast from time to time. Thank you, Karen. (laughs) (laughs) She will listen to this at exactly 1235 when she gets to the segment, and she'll be very happy to hear that. Indeed. Thank you, Karen. I'm already missing Karen and Elizabeth's podcast. I, I loved That's a Thing so much. And I think that they need to do this, a special version for seniors to explain to seniors how the internets work. And what you should and should not listen to, because I think, you know, uh, Elizabeth's focus was about, you know, media literacy for for preteens and their parents. I think somebody needs to do media literacy for the grandparents. Unfortunately, that podcast is not this podcast. This has been your (laughs) municipal politics. Thank you so much, Paula. I know I speak for all of our listeners when I said it's a joy to have you on and we miss you. Come back anytime and be a columnist in Edmonton again. Well, you know, years and years and years ago, I know Matt, Matt wrote a piece in which he said, you know, why does Paula even bother to write for the Edmonton Journal? She could just go to city council and write about it for free. <laughs> <laughs> so be careful. Be, 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 be careful what you wish for. <laughs> I, I think he ended up doing that himself. <laughs> yes, I had to take over. You left me high and dry here. Yeah. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by the Northwest Fest International Documentary Festival, running in cinema from May 6th to the 14th and online from May 5th to the 15th. Northwest Fest is thrilled to finally be able to bring the festival back to Metro Cinema this year with an outstanding lineup of some of the year's best docs and a few fun surprises. This year's festival is a hybrid affair with over 20 films screening at Metro Cinema, including the acclaimed Nick Cave music doc, This Much I Know to Be True, along with dozens of feature and short films screening online. Award-winning filmmaker Alexandre O. Felipe will also be in town to present his filmmaking masterclass. 
This event will be open to the public and is an absolute must for anyone who's ever dreamed of making their own film. You can check out the full Northwest Fest film lineup and purchase an all-access pass or single tickets at northwestfest.ca. Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And I'm the Honorable Paula. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally.